This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. Friday is always like, hey, we made it through another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions or pretty much anything going on in your life. Uh, I'll do the best I can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and um, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. A couple of things, because it's Friday tonight, I'm going to be teaching out of Second Peter, finishing Chapter 1. Uh, I think it's one of the important studies. Uh, chapter 1, Second Peter, is a treasure, uh, and I'm going to be finishing that chapter uh, tonight, um, of course, Sunday, I'm going to be teaching out of First Timothy chapter 3. You can all watch uh, both of the services, Friday and Sunday, at calvarysa.com uh, via live stream. And we'd love to have you do that. The second thing I want to mention, and I'm just going to take a minute of this because I know it would embarrass him, but I want to say thank you to my friend Michael Payne, um, the general manager of KSLR, uh, Radio Salem. He's a general manager for the K Loop and KSLR as well. Um, Michael's retiring today. He's a friend. Uh, he has been a faithful friend. Uh, we owe him a lot, and um, I, I just—it's been an honor, an honor to work with him. And uh, Chad, who's taking over, I'm sure. Uh, will be as great a blessing. But Michael, I'm sure you're not listening today. you got all kinds of things going on, but I want you to know how much you were appreciated and loved. And God bless you, and we will be praying for you as you venture into this next phase of your life. Thanks, Mike. Okay, let's get to some questions while we wait for the phones to light up. First one comes from Jonathan. When I tell people I'm praying for them, they often act as though I should be doing more. Are prayers enough? You know, Jonathan, this is a cultural question that, that you get now. Some, something bad happens, or our thoughts are with you, or our thoughts and prayers are with you. And of course, unbelievers don't understand the value of prayer at all. 
Um, so don't worry about how people act. Praying is the single most significant thing that we can do on somebody else's behalf. The most significant thing. So please, 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 you keep praying for him. And the way I typically answer that, Jonathan, when somebody hints at it is simply to say, you know what? When I pray for you, I'm talking directly to God, the only one who really has all the power available to help you. And so when I pray for you, there's nothing greater that I could do. And if you don't appreciate it, I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep praying for you. And, and usually when you say, I'm going to keep praying for you to unbelievers, that's when they get upset. So, Jonathan, it's a great way to witness. You keep praying for people and uh, don't have any qualms at all about telling them that you're going to continue to pray for them. I appreciate that, Jonathan. Here's a question from David. He says, Pastor Ron, what is meant by creating an atmosphere of worship in a church service? You know, David, you've hit on one of my pet peeves. Um, You know, worshiping God is an individual choice that we make. And if somebody's during, we typically worship as music here in, in the church culture that we're in. And if somebody's worshiping God, um, then you've created an atmosphere of worship. We just give people the opportunity to worship, but we don't have to do anything to create a special environment for worship. That's really important. And I think, David, that's what you see in a lot of churches these days where they're putting on a show, they're doing a performance, they're trying to move people emotionally. That's why worship leaders have the annoying habit of talking too much instead of just playing the music as unto the Lord and for the Lord. You know, they're, they're trying to move people emotionally. That's why we repeat choruses over and over and over and over. And I'm using the, the we in a collective sense. It's, it's why we start with fast songs and slow them down because we want to create a worship environment. And David, I don't know whether you're a worship leader or, or interested in becoming a worship leader. That, that's what the, the genesis of your question was. But there's just too much pressure that a worship leader puts on himself or herself when, in fact, they believe it's their responsibility to create an, a worship environment. So um, worship is what happens between a man and God or a woman and God. It's interesting to me. I'm not necessarily, David, a music person. I love the worship at our church. But, but honestly, the reason I love it so much, I mean, it's really good. But the reason I love it is because I know the people doing the worship. And I know their stories. And so for me, I just get to smile at them and thank God. I'm always in the front row getting ready to get on the stage. So I just get to thank God for them. And, and, and I, I sort of remember their stories and just praise the Lord for what he's done in them. I know with our worship teams here at Calvary Chapel that those people mean every word they're singing. And that means so much to me. So that's an atmosphere of worship to me. But we don't have to dim the lights. We don't have to have fog or smoke coming from the stage. We certainly don't need light shows. All we need to do is make sure that when your worship team is going on that stage, their hearts are right with God, that they're walking with Him, they're empowered by His Spirit, and then what happens the rest of the time is between the people who are worshiping and God. 
It's always interesting. I go on the stage, David, um, just before I walk up uh, um, toward the end of the last song, I'll go up on stage. So for a few minutes, three or four minutes, I get to stand up there and look out. Now, I can't see very well, but I look out at people, and I can see some people with their arms raised and tears flowing down their cheeks, and I can see other people completely disinterested. That's not the worship leader's fault. It's always the heart of the one who is worshiping. So typically, David, what is meant is that we're going to do a good show. But the last thing worship should ever be is a show. Good question, David. 340-9585. We'd love to have your live calls on this last day of the week. Marty says, since Jesus didn't change the law... Shouldn't we still be keeping the law? Um, Marty, Jesus didn't change the law, but he fulfilled the law. Now imagine if you had a glass of water, and in that glass there was only just, oh, maybe an inch of water. You didn't, you didn't fill the glass. Maybe you fill it halfway up, or two-thirds of the way up, or three-quarters of the way up, and there's still, you, the glass isn't full. But when you leave the water running and the water pours out over the edge of the glass and just keeps going, well, then you've filled the glass. In the same way, Jesus, by never sinning, fulfilled the law. And in fulfilling the law, he canceled the law. You see, in Jesus' day, Marty, and unfortunately the same thing is true in a lot of Christians' minds and certainly misrepresented in a lot of Christian churches. We don't understand the law. People like Saul of Tarsus believed that they could keep the Sabbath law completely, perfectly, one Sabbath day, and that would usher in the return of the Messiah, or the the, the first coming for them of the Messiah. But nobody could do it. And the purpose of the law wasn't so that we would do it. The purpose of the law demonstrated to us the heart of God, the character of God, the absolute holiness of God. But you see, as it comes to us as individuals, the law only frustrated us because we kept breaking it. It's almost like we walk throughout the day and there's somebody walking right behind you with a megaphone saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. Well, that's what the law did. And the purpose of the law was to drive us to Jesus because we're powerless to keep the law. And because we're powerless to keep the law, the law could never accomplish what God wanted. God's desire was that man would come to him in a relationship. Well, in order for that to happen, Jesus had to come. And he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. He kept both the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. He demonstrated that for us on the Sermon on the Mount. And because he did it perfectly, people say, well, how do you know he did it perfectly? Well, because when Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice from heaven in the Shekinah glory of God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. By the way, he also told us to listen to him. He also said, this is my son in whom I'm pleased by raising him from the dead. 
And that's when we were free from the law, Marty. Free from the law of the, or from the from the burden of trying to keep the law. We we no longer have to strive in our own strength to do the best we can. Instead, all we have to do is rejoice and be grateful that Jesus fulfilled the law and in dying as we believe, he gives us his righteousness. Now, does that mean Christians shouldn't live good, upright, moral lives? Of course not. But I always use this term with our church, Marty. Before Jesus, the law was a got-to. After Jesus, the law is a get-to. And it's a privileged position to be in. So no, we shouldn't still be keeping the law. What we should do, and this is one of my favorite New Testament verses, Paul says, find out what pleases the Lord. That's the new law that we've got written on our hearts. Good question, Marty. Thank you very, very much. Alicia says, what's your opinion of Jews getting saved but continuing to observe the law? Uh, I didn't realize these two questions were back-to-back, Alicia. Um, um, you know, when, when and, and I'm going to expand the scope of your question, not just Jews continuing to observe the law, but, but legalistic churches or Christians, um, those who've got all kinds of rules seemingly about everything. Um, the, the problem is Jesus set you free, and, and it's like you're staying in jail. You know, I always think of Paul and Silas when the earthquake happened in the jail in Philippi and um, they were set free. Now, they could have put the chains back on, but they were free. Well, when somebody strives to observe the law, Torah, they're not free. And so my opinion of it is it's very sad. And I wish it weren't true, Alicia, but there's a lot of people who, who somehow seem bent on doing the best they can to keep all the rules. And Jesus never intended for us to walk through this world like that. He intended us to walk with a smile in our heart, a smile on our face, and enjoying the freedom. It is for freedom you have been set free, Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. It's for freedom. Freedom is the point. And Lisa, whenever you find people observing the law of any persuasion, you're going to find frustrated, miserable people in pain. Because we can't. Alicia, one of the reasons that I start my day is, is this, Lord, today of my own free will, I choose to serve Jesus. Not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit in your name and for your glory. That's how, I, I when I walk out of the house, that's the first thing that comes out of my lips. Because I realize I can't even do that. I don't even desire to do the right thing. It has to be Christ in me that gives me that desire. 
And, you know, um, observing the law is just hard work, labor. But walking with Jesus every day, Alicia, is a labor of love, and the difference between those two is infinite. Absolutely infinite. So I, 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 I feel sad when I see legalists because they're never filled with joy. They're never happy. They're never content. They're always trying to do something to make God pleased with them. And they never really get to enjoy the fact that God is already pleased. He loves them. And it's almost like he is asking you out on a play date every day. And you're saying, no, because i got to work hard for you, God. That's miss, the, the miss, when we miss it. 340-9585, if you have any questions or calls. Here's a question from Ted. Um, I think the gospel should be a part of the Old Testament because Jesus hadn't died yet. Um, Ted, I think you're partly right. Um, it's, it's a New Testament um, story. Now, there are certainly Old Testament characters. John the Baptist, for example, is uh, the, the, the last of the Old Testament dispensation of prophet. Um, he's an Old Testament figure, though he's found in the New Testament. But you see, the New Testament, the Gospel accounts, um, are, are Jesus introducing a new way to deal with God? A, a new way that God is dealing with us? So yes, he hadn't died yet. He hadn't been raised from the dead yet. Um, but the Gospels tell us a very, very important story. In fact, the most glorious story in the history of our world. Now, Ted, here's what I think maybe you're getting at, and and uh, I say this all the time on this program. If you're going to understand the Gospels, you have to understand the Jewishness of them. Jesus' ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His ministry was entirely Jewish. His followers were Jewish. They observed the law. They, they, I mean, that's, that's what they were supposed to do. Jesus was advertising in the Gospels a way out from being, or from being under the law. And so they're new. It's a new message. It's a new hope. It's a new life. One of the themes of the four Gospels is, is the old is gone, the new has come. New life in Christ, being born again. Um, but um, while I believe they belong in the New Testament, if you misunderstand the Jewishness of the Gospel accounts, especially when, when Jesus is speaking, uh, Ted, then you uh, lose the, the import and the, the real practical value of the gospel account. You know, if you don't, I'll just give you one example. When Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea. Well, see, we read that and false teachers twist and pervert it. But you see, if you understand the Jewishness of that passage, you understand Jesus isn't at all concerned with casting mountains into seas has nothing to do with what he's saying. He's talking about those insurmountable problems. It comes from the prophecy of Zechariah. A mountain is an immovable object. And Jesus is saying, no, with new life, just a little tiny bit of faith, that mountain will be removed. 
And see, we, we, when we understand that, then there, there's some cohesion and sense um, with the themes of the gospel accounts. So, Ted, Jewishness, yes, we need always to remember it and to view it through that lens. But uh, part of the Old Testament, uh, Jesus said, you'll remember that the Law and the Prophets, which is a Jewish way of symbolically saying um, the, the whole of the Old Testament, uh, he said, the Law and the Prophets testified of me. Jesus came to fulfill that. It's one of the reasons I tell people to read Matthew. Uh, I think that's, you know, a, a gospel. We always tell new believers or, or unsaved people to read the gospel of John, and, and rightly so. But if you're really going to be studying it and you want to understand it, I tell people to start with Matthew. You're already saved. Go to Matthew. It's the most Jewish of all of the gospel accounts. Thus the scriptures were fulfilled as a continuing theme in the gospel of Matthew. So, I um, hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Raphael. He says, uh, Pastor Ron, are 12-step groups consistent with Bible teaching? Uh, Raphael, I've had that question in the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, they're, they're antithetical to Bible teaching. Uh, the 12-step groups... Uh, and, and I don't want to be misunderstood. And people that don't know Christ, that they need something in any program is better than nothing. But they are antithetical to, in opposition to, the teaching of our Bibles. Jesus says, when you're born again, you're brand new. You're forgiven. Your sins as far from you as east is from west. Paul says the old is gone, the new has come. That's why Jesus matters so much. The 12-step group says, no, once an addict, always an addict. It's always frustrating for me when, when somebody believes in Christ who set him free, and yet they're depending on a meeting in a 12-step group to make him better. 12-step group is so ingrained in our Western culture that people don't even question it. And you cannot be involved in a 12-step group and at the same time diligently studying your Bible because you're going to find that the two things don't mean it's, it's like trying to fit the wrong word in a crossword puzzle into the wrong space. So no, Raphael, they are not at all consistent. Um, as I said, in fact, they are in opposition to... Now, let me tell you what really frustrates me, Raphael. That's when I watch churches who take a 12-step program, throw in some Christianese words, and try to present it as a Christian program. The ones who should understand the Word of God and the freedom therein more than anybody, all they've done is taken a worldly thing and dressed it up a little bit with Christianese and they pass it off. Celebrate recovery is one of them. I know I make people angry when I say that, but but read your Bibles. Understand what God has already done for you. 
If you don't get that, then there's no program that will help you. I don't mean to sound trite when I say this, but I, I tell our church here all the time that 12-step program has 11 steps too many. It's just one, come to Jesus. All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, he said. That's all we have to do. And that is not what we're taught in a 12-step group. So, Raphael, that's the best I can do, and I'll deal with my contentious emails as a result. It always bothers people when I talk about 12-step groups. How are we doing on time here? A little over a minute. Um, can't do that question in a minute. Or that one. Here's one I can do from Donald. Uh, do cessationists believe that tongues no longer exist? Does your church have times when everyone can speak in tongues? Donald, um, cessationists do believe that tongues, um, sign gifts in general, uh, no longer exist. And no, our church does not have a time on Sundays when everyone can speak in tongues. And when we do have afterglows or times when we have the gifts of the Spirit flowing, um, we would never have a time when everybody's speaking in tongues all at the same time. I want to come back to this one, Donald, because I think this is something that people really misunderstand. Hey, we've only got 30 minutes left in the week. The phones have been quiet. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our final 30 minutes of the program, 340-9585. I want to get back to Donald's question because I looked at it and thought, I could do this in a minute, but I couldn't. Um, Donald, secessionists believe that the sign gifts have ended. A sign remembers giving directions or pointing to something or someone. Um, I can tell you that tongues, as they appear in Acts chapter 2, that was a one-time-only event, never to be repeated. That was the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit came down just like the cloven tongues of fire. Was a one-time experience, and the and the sound of a mighty rushing wind was a one-time experience. So too were the tongues there. It was it was a reversal. I'm going to be teaching next Wednesday night on on um, um, the Tower of Babel. Um, you know, this was God reversing the curse of the Tower of Babel. Whenever when the languages are scattered, it was just Jesus' grand entrance in the person of the Holy Spirit into the world. So. That kind of experience has ceased, but there's other tongues that Paul personally says he wishes we all spoke in tongues more than he does, and it's in the continuous present tense, so it's not something that stops. It's a different purpose. And um, um, 
I, I didn't want to go too quickly past everyone speaking at once in tongues. Whenever you see that, Donald, that is not the devil or the Holy Spirit. That's the enemy. That's not the Holy Spirit because that's in violation of the way the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. It's in opposition to the way the Bible says that the, the gifts should be used, especially and specifically the gift of tongues should be used uh, in uh, in church in a church setting, in a corporate setting. So um, if you ever go into church where everybody's speaking in tongues at the same time, well, then you're in a church that is out of order and out of control. So, Donald, I hope that helps you a little bit. Um, do I have Anonymous on the line? No. Nope. I got an- okay. I've got a, a written-in question. I'm still kind of looking it up real quick, so let me go to another question first. Here is another anonymous question. Do you believe that God can change homosexuals so they'll be attracted to the opposite gender if they are born again? Um, Anonymous, when you ask a question that generally, God can do anything, of course. But, But almost universally, the answer to your question is no. You know, we went through a period of time, um, a shameful period of time in our church history where uh, in our recent church history when um, I think cruelly and certainly without any um, intellect at all, um, we were putting people through like conversion therapy programs, um, Exodus International and some others. Um, There is no conversion therapy. People get born again, and if they are attracted to uh, same-sex people, um, then what they got to do is the same thing you've got to do when you're tempted. It's deny your flesh. You've got to choose, am I going to please God or am I going to satisfy me? So no, I don't believe that God changes homosexuals so they're attracted to the opposite sex. What I do believe is that God gives sufficient grace so that people can live chaste and celibate lives and, and, and those lives still be fulfilling, richly fulfilling lives. Um, but uh, very seldom do you hear testimonies of people who are no longer attracted to the same sex. Uh, it's happened. Um, one of the a young woman that I love listening to, her name is Jackie Hill Perry. You can put her on YouTube. Uh, she has a, a, a powerful testimony, um, and she is now happily married with children and and she lived a gay lifestyle, a tough gay lifestyle, for a very long time. But you see, she got to that place where she had to decide, do I want to do what I want, or am I going to do what God wants? And God has given her not only a ministry, but a very rich, fulfilling life, a family life. Um, I think that is the exception rather than the rule. But no way ever anonymous, no way ever um, should we assume even for a moment that uh, we can pray the gay away? That was the the, the big tagline um, when I got saved and, and up until the last few years when it's sort of fallen into to, uh, to shame. Um, but, but no, I, I think it's just a struggle that we're going to have. And God's grace is always enough in the middle of those struggles. 
So I hope that answers your question, Anonymous. Here is a question from Randy. He says, my question is about 1 Samuel 28. Was it really Samuel that they were talking with? Um, Randy, I always get a lot of questions about 1 Samuel 28, the witch of Endor. Um, And yes, it was really Samuel that they were talking to. Uh, You remember he was a little grouchy, a little cranky uh, because he was in paradise and suddenly God allowed him to come back. And and remember, the message that Samuel brought back was the message of judgment. Tomorrow you will be with me. You will be as I am. It doesn't mean he's going to be with him in heaven. It just means he's going to be in the same condition. And that condition is death. And Saul is certainly not going to be in heaven. So um, um, he and his sons were were killed the next day. The Witch of Endor is an interesting story. Um, you know, I've had people say, well, well, God blessed her. No, he didn't. He judged her. And she was the most surprised person in the room when Samuel appeared. She knew she was a phony. She knew she was playing with, with lying and deceiving spirits. But when Samuel really showed up, instantly she knew, you've trapped me. Why have you done this to me? And she knew that she was doing something that was really, really forbidden by the Lord. So it was really Samuel. I think that much is clear from the passage of Scripture. And um, to assume it's anything else because God doesn't approve of witchcraft is to misunderstand the point of the story. God can violate his own rules for the benefit of man or, as in this case, to deliver a message of judgment. You want to trust your future with the witch of Endor, Saul? Here's how we'll do it. And then she got the judgment. So that was God's thing. Here is another anonymous question, really important one. What is the most effective way to deal with depression? I've struggled for a long time, even though I'm a Christian. Uh, anonymous two things. Don't beat yourself up for struggling with depression because you're a Christian. Um, you know, Christians, not only do we struggle with the biological parts of our brain, but there is an enemy who's going to try to pile on. He's going to be the one who's, who, who tries to, to put you into a depressed state and then try to pounce on you when you are depressed. So um, don't approach this like, well, there must be something wrong with my faith or maybe God's angry with me. Don't, don't even go there. That's where the enemy wants you to go. The most effective way to deal with depression is not meds. If I could scream that from the mountain that Jesus wants to throw in the sea, I talked about in the first half of the program, I'd like to throw this mountain in the sea. You know, we go to a doctor, I'm not feeling well, or I'm a little bit down, they immediately put you on antidepressants or other kinds of, of, um, of meds. And people don't get better. Now, if you need meds, take them. I say that every time I answer a question like this. But make sure that you need them first. Commit these things to prayer. Get close to Jesus. And if you've got a chemical imbalance, you've got some sort of bipolar disorder, uh, and you need meds to function and to rightly represent Jesus, by all means, take them. Just don't rely on them. Certainly never take secular counsel for dealing with depression. Open your Bible. You find out where Jesus is. 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The Apostle Paul struggled with depression. He didn't like being alone. Three times he sought the Lord and the Lord showed up and ministered to him. Now, it'll be different for you, maybe because it won't be physical, but, but Jesus will show up when you really seek the Lord. And I, again, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about pray more, read more, study more, serve more. That's not the way to deal with depression. The way to deal with depression is to be with Jesus. Talk to him. Share your heart with him. In his presence, the psalmist writes, is the fullness of joy. And that joy is sustainable through your bouts with depression. But it's the only way, Anonymous, to deal with depression at all, and that's just you got to be with Jesus. I think when we get depressed, and I know this is what the enemy does, the enemy tries to focus on, uh, get us to focus on how bad we feel, how down we are, and that's when it's like he's sitting on your chest, pinning your arms down, and you can't even fight. When we're dealing with depression, it's when we least feel like reading our Bibles. It's when we least feel like talking to the Lord in prayer. But because the fight is so important, it's when we have to fight the hardest. And so you've got to, one, discipline yourself. You've got to know that you've got the power of God connected to you all the time if you'll just plug into it. And that's the only way to deal with depression. Jesus is the place that we can dump all of our issues. And he's not angry with you when you say, I'm depressed, Lord. I don't want to be, but I'm depressed. He's not looking at you like he looked at his disciples throughout his ministry here on earth. Oh, ye of little faith. He's not doing that. He'll just hold his arms out and say, come to me. Come closer, come closer. Rather than dwelling on the things that we're depressed about, we need to dwell on the answer to those things. And that answer, of course, is Jesus. What he's accomplished for us on the cross. And Anonymous, one final thing, and I steal this from Paula, because I've heard her say this to women she ministers to all the time. I don't feel like getting out of bed. They'll say, I'm just so depressed. I don't know where God is. I can't feel his presence. And Paula will tell him, get up, take a shower, get dressed, and call me back. You can't stay stationary. Stationary targets are just sitting ducks for the devil. And he's going to pile on. He's not going to give you a break because you're struggling. He's going to pile on. And that's why we need to get moving. You don't feel like opening your Bible? Take a walk with Jesus. And when you come back, open your Bible. Discipline, self-control. And when we obey the Lord, Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. And that context is there in power. And as we step out and obey the Lord, especially when we least feel like doing it, it's in those moments. It's in those moments where God takes over. I explain it like a tidal wave of love and a tidal wave of power, and it just makes things better. 
So I hope that helps a little bit. We'll be praying. Here's an anonymous question from, uh, well, from Anonymous. Who is Dalton Thomas? Um, I got the question while we're on the break, so I didn't really get a big chance to uh, look, but let me see what we've got. He is a filmmaker. He's an author, the founder and director of Frontier Alliance International. Uh, They're committed to lay foundations for the gospel where there are none, exalting Jesus among the unreached and unengaged or the disengaged. At the end of the age, uh, FAI is laying foundations where there are none. Um, There's a a studio, um, uh, FAI Studios has a series called Covenant and Controversy, a series of films. It's a five-part series um, that explores uh, the history and theology of uh, the controversy over the Jewish people and of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. I, I you know, I, I certainly wouldn't anonymous uh, recommend it uh, without without being able to really dig in and see what the content is. I am naturally skeptical of uh, very vague, generalized uh, mission statements and. Um, um, Especially, somebody they're going to solve all the problems with Israel. That doesn't happen in five thousand years, so I don't think it's going to happen there. So be careful. Just be discerning. Let the Spirit. James says, "Ask the Lord for uh, wisdom, who gives it generously. Ask Him, and 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 He'll protect you." But I don't know anything. First time I've ever heard the name was right now. Here is a question from Mary, no, Mariah, I'm sorry, having a hard time seeing. Did Jesus just come for Jews? How can we Gentiles be saved if that's true? Um, Mariah, he didn't come just for Jews. He came just to Jews or to Israel. And that's a big difference. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his ministry. He was here the first time for one reason, and that is to expose himself as the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. And his ministry was all and only about Jews. Now, obviously, we know that there were other people that were um, impacted, but he came for Jews, um, uh, but he didn't come only to Jews. And the fact that you and I, Mariah, are part of his family is proof of that. So that's a distinction that needs to be made. Um, Jesus, you remember when told his disciples, I have much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will lead you into all truth. And, of course, when the Holy Spirit came, that's when the church was born. The church was born in Acts chapter 2. It was entirely Jewish at first. Jesus said to his disciples, who would be apostles, um, proclaim the gospel in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then into the uttermost parts of the earth. So there was a stepping stone. So the first century church was obedient. They came first to Jews. It's not until uh, Acts chapter 10, when Gentiles are impacted. Cornelius um, sends for Peter. Peter's told by God in a vision to go to the house of Cornelius. And Gentiles got saved. That was a a remarkable thing. Earlier than that, I think in the 8th chapter of of, um, Acts, um, 
Philip was sent to Samaria, where he had a, a, a thriving ministry, Samaritans. Jews also hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. And yet Philip was sent by God to get them. So they, they followed the formula to Jerusalem, then Judea, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, and then, of course, in Acts chapter 9, he apprehended the man who would bring the gospel, Moriah, to people like you and to me. So I hope that distinction uh, is, uh, is clear. He came for Israel, but he came to all of us. He just did it in steps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Mandy asks, uh, Pastor Ryan, is it okay to ask God for a sign when you're not sure what to do? Mandy, Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And uh, I know we love to be perfectly clear on what God's instructions for us are, but but we simply will never know with complete perfection. You know, Mindy, I've, um, I'm like every Christian. At some point I said, God, give me a sign. Tell me what to do. I don't want to mess up. Um, our sign is an empty tomb. And Jesus wants to teach us to walk by faith. Now, when I say this, people say, well, well Gideon asked for a sign. Well, Gideon didn't ask for a sign because his faith was strong. Gideon asked for a sign because his faith was weak. We also need to remember that Gideon did not have the relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit that we have. Gideon did not have a New Testament. You see, Mandy, we need to understand that God is the one who wants to protect us. He wants to bless us. And if our heart is right with God, if you're about to make a wrong decision, but you're about to make it for the right reasons, God will protect you. He has stopped me, Mandy, so many times over the years from making a terrible mistake. I believed that what I was doing was right. I believed it was the direction he wanted me to go, but I was wrong. So he let me go so far and then sort of put the brakes on things, and I really appreciate that about him. But to ask God for a sign is to say, God, I don't want to walk by faith. I'd rather walk by sight. And of course, you know we're supposed to do just the opposite. So that's one of the things that we need to remember. It's never good to ask God for a sign. It demonstrates that we're unwilling to walk by faith and trust Him. And that's really what active faith is. It's just trusting God in the day-to-day issues of life. So don't ask Him for a sign. Just ask Jesus Let me tuck in behind you. Let me walk with you. And he'll lead you in the direction you need to go. Mandy, I am 100% convinced that every Christian most of the time puts too much pressure on ourselves to do the right thing. When your Bible says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, it doesn't say that he began it, but Mandy, you've got to finish it. Bible says that he is the author, the originator, and the finisher, the perfecter of your faith. Jesus didn't say, okay, I saved you, now you're on your own, do the right thing. So, um, just seek the Lord in prayer. And when your heart is right, and your decision is wrong, you're going to see Jesus intervene. 
one final thought that I think is really important, Mandy. I think sometimes we've got to learn to walk in the silence of God. Do what you want to do. Unless the Lord stops you, do what you want to do. If you'll do what you want to do, and it's not the right thing, as I say, he'll stop you. Don't pray for open doors, closed doors. Just, Jesus, I've prayed, I've been in the Word, this is what I think you want to do. That's what it means to walk by faith. Here is our last question today, anonymous from our email inbox that just came in. Today the news reported that the Pope gathered in an interfaith prayer with Muslims, Jews, and Christians. As a Christian, I just shake my head at the hypocrisy of this act. Even Catholics are speaking against him. The Pope defended his act by saying, but how can we not pray to the Father of us all? Each one prays as they know how, as they are able to. We're not praying one against the other, one tradition against another, but as brothers. Well, um, Anonymous, that's the kind of nonsense that uh, the world would want us to believe. Uh, the Pope, um, I don't even know what to say. He's so far off. I mean, he's even off of his own Catholic doctrines, which are off to begin with. So this is just what the world says. Well, let's just all come together. We'll, we'll sit down and um, warm ourselves at the fire of the enemy. There's no value in praying with or even for people who don't know Jesus. Our prayers cannot be heard. And for us to sit together in an interfaith prayer meeting with people who are not of the faith... Well, I'm with you. My head shakes. But, you know, more importantly, Anonymous, I think Jesus' head shakes. And I think there's tears pouring down his face. There's a whole bunch of people making a lot of noise. I always think of the prophets of Baal when Elijah was goading them. You remember his response? Maybe you should pray louder. Talk louder. Come on, do some more stuff. Sweat a little bit more. Maybe your God is asleep. Well, I, I don't want to pray with people whose God isn't really God. And that's the world that we live in, and the Pope, of course, is... Boy, he's leading us in the direction of a one-world religion, isn't he? Or at least he's trying to. Now, he doesn't have the horsepower to do that, so don't misunderstand. He's not... This Pope is not the false prophet. But this is the way of the world that we live in. It can't be the way of Christians. So, Anonymous, pray for the Pope. He needs to get saved. Thanks for the question. Hey, we're at the end of our program today. You're going to hear the music at any moment. Um, I pray for all of you that you'll go to church. You won't be afraid. Stay home. If your church is open, go. Let the Lord meet you there. Be blessed. Fall more in love with Jesus than you've ever been. It'll make it a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Hey, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up For Life. Lord willing, I'll be back Monday on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.